Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm intrigued by this question that I hear rolling around the world right now, even in the most secular of corners. What do religious people and traditions have to offer and teach as we do the work ahead of repairing, renewing, and remaking our societies, our life together? I'm interested in the theological and mystical depths that are so much richer and more creative than is often imagined, even when that question is raised. I'm interested in the wisdom which at once holds and evolves in the conversation across generations that this part of the human enterprise carries. So today, we take in a rich rabbinic perspective on our time, that of Ariel Berger. And we also experience, over our conversational shoulder, some offerings of his teacher, the late, extraordinary Elie Wiesel, who survived the Holocaust and became a figure of towering moral wisdom amidst the 20th century's terrors. This conversation offers vocabularies, ways of seeing, to enrich our capacities in this daunting age. It is an exercise in what Wiesel's friend and teacher, the great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, spoke of as the religious calling to be maladjusted with positive moral force, neither indifferently conformed to the reality of evil and suffering, nor inured to wondrous and redemptive possibilities we can make real. The way there includes lamentation for our losses, learning the difference between being a spectator or bearing witness, and a sacred understanding of memory as far more than contact with information about the past. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Ariel Berger is a rabbi as well as an artist and teacher. He's the author of Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom. I love this description he gives of Wiesel's face. It looks like a map of the world if the world had been wounded but still managed to laugh. Ariel Berger's own religious sensibility was formed in part by the contrast between the two homes of his parents, who divorced when he was young. Both Jewish, yet in his father's home, artistic and less observant, in his mother's attending an ultra-Orthodox school that gave him a deep early immersion in Jewish tradition and text. I would just love to start where I really like to start, with hearing how you would begin to talk about the religious and spiritual background of your earliest life, of your childhood? Mm. Well, it's a very timely question because just this week I reached out to my first grade Rebbe, my <laughs> first grade teacher, who was a, a Hasid, mm-hmm. which means he comes from the Hasidic tradition and the same tradition that Elie Wiesel came from. And I grew up with memories of this teacher who seemed as if he had come from the old world 200 years ago. Mm. He dressed, you know, in the traditional Hasidic fashion with a long coat. He had payas, the side curls that literally went down to his ankles, although he wore them usually bound up behind his ear. But one time I saw him let his hair down. And I had this vivid image of that. And finally, through a friend, I, I tracked him down just this week and had a conversation with him. 
And it was very beautiful, a kind of reunion with one of my first teachers who really introduced me to the study of Bible and, and the commentaries. And I remember, I remember very vividly the first letter that I ever saw as a six-year-old oh. in, in the Chumash. Not, not learning, I learned the alphabet before that, but the first time I sat down to learn Chumash, the Bible in Hebrew, and I remember that letter like it was today. And, and then there was a moment even earlier than that when we learned the alphabet. And this was an old world custom that they had in my school where they taught us the Aleph Bays, the Hebrew alphabet, and then they gave us a sugar cube. <sighs> yeah. And, and I can taste it. I can taste that sugar cube. And it's, it's kept me going in many ways over time. You know, when you speak about words and Jewish tradition so reverences language and the powers of language, words as making worlds. And I mean, I'm so fascinated. Like, I could talk to you for an hour about this. Just, you know, how also, but also even the spaces between letters and words is as important also as the yeah. letters that you learn. Yeah. Um, there's such richness. It's so layered, that experience. Yeah. And maybe more important, maybe the white space is more important. And if you ever look at a traditional page of of an old Jewish text, like uh, an old Hebrew Bible with commentaries or an old edition of, of the Talmud, which is the classic rabbinic work of, of the oral tradition, uh, there's text in the middle and then there are commentaries around the sides and then there's space around the edges. And I really believe that in, in some ways, of course, the oldest text is most authoritative and most important. It's closest to Sinai is what we say. It's closest to Mount Sinai. It's closest to the origin. But it's really the white space around the edges that ultimately is most important because that's where we we get to write our questions and we get to expand and grow and evolve a tradition that without us would have long since become either, either dormant and rigid or would have disappeared entirely. And I think that's not just true for, for Jewish text. I think it's true in general. Creativity is is essential in having a dialogue with the old ideas and the old wisdoms and bringing them forward with our own voice and our own questions is that to me is the the engine of Jewish creativity and, and human survival in many ways. Um, you know, when I read, when I pick up your book now, Witness, which is Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom, which you wrote from, it sounds like countless notebooks that you took of your time <laughs> as his student and 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 teaching alongside him to some extent, um, the discussions that you describe in that classroom about good and evil and how to be moral and how to engage difference and how to engage serious, complex questions and disagreement where good and evil are not at all clear or what to do with that. It all feels so resonant with I think the questions we know that are with us, not just in this country, in the United States, but, but in our world, in this young century. And I just, I, I wonder if for you also in this time, if that classroom has been present to you, that classroom mm. that formed you, but also the, the questions that came out of that and the, the kind of conversation that was possible there. Yeah, this is where I live and what I think about all the time. And, and the classroom is with me all the time. Mm-hmm. as it is for many other students of, of Elie Wiesel. Uh, and I think there are so many, not only 
pieces of content or teachings or stories that are very, very helpful and useful for us right now, but also tools and methods from religious traditions and wisdom traditions more broadly that we can repurpose or refine or bring back to life or recontextualize and, and use in ways that perhaps the, the authors of these ideas and tools would never have imagined. And so we know that education isn't isn't a guarantee of, of moral sensitivity, but he taught us that memory is the ingredient. And then there's a lot more from specifically from religious traditions that I think we we need right now. And not just in a religious context, not just in right. churches and synagogues and mosques, but in, in the street and in all of our interpersonal relationships, ideas that we don't necessarily take seriously. But if we did, I imagine a world that's very different. Yeah. You know, um, through the pandemic I and all the all the loss and all the death that we've experienced as as societies and as a world, it was just so clear that we don't we don't know how to mourn collectively, right? And I, I kept thinking of the word lamentation and the and the rituals of lamentation. And I, I had a conversation at some point in 2020 with a group of rabbis, and um, they were talking about how that ritual, in its roots, had an impulse to be offered up to the whole community, not to, to the world around, not merely inside the walls of the synagogue. And that just got my imagination so fired up about what yeah, I mean, I even think the word lamentation in this period we've all been through lands with kind of a relief. Oh, like, oh, that's something we could do. That's mm-hmm. something we could learn. That's something we could do together. That word has great dignity. Mm. And I think that's signaling that we need to honor our grief. And um, it's one of the many things I think we run away from. One of the things we're taught to run away from is grief. There are other things, too. I think we're taught to run away from great joy also. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm a follower of a, a great Hasidic master named Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who, uh, who passed away in uh, 1810 and lived in the Ukraine. And, and he really emphasized the softening of the mm-hmm. heart, the biblical verse that says, give me a heart of flesh. And the goal of a lot of the practices in that, in that stream of Jewish mystical thought is to deeply open to experience, whether it's joy or pain, and ultimately, it's really about finding the places where, where weeping and joy can come together or where mm. yearning and delight can come together. It's not a feeling of happiness. It's not superficial happiness. It's not wanting to jump up and down dancing. It's grief. It's sitting in grief. But just the act of acceptance of what, what's there. Letting it be true. Le- yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and not resisting and... Mm-hmm. Welcoming and dignifying. I think that comes with a certain kind of mm-hmm. joy. You mentioned th- th- this language of memory, this notion of memory. Um, it's a word we all know and hear a lot, and it's very layered in terms of what you mean when you say that how, how learning can save us, how memory is in fact the thing that can join knowledge and ethics. So you're not talking necessarily formally about education and also not just the transmission of information. Right. Right. But what is it what is it about this kind of memory that is transformative? I'm really obsessed with the question of the mechanics of moral transformation. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we not just talk about the ideas of kindness and justice and so on that we that we right. wish for, that we aspire to, but 
to go beyond platitude and cliche and really get in there with, you know, what happens at an individual nervous system level, what happens in a culture, right? what happens in a group of people, and how do we start to work with that? And I think memory, I think what Professor Wiesel meant by memory was the specific tools, the specific encounters, the specific celebration of questions that can lead to that kind of transformation. And it's not just, as you can tell, and as you know very well, it's not just an intellectual experience. And so, you know, part of the question is, what do we need to bring to educational moments and encounters beyond beyond a student's brain or beyond a teacher's brain and beyond the, the knowledge that they've acquired? And how do we do that? How do we bring our hearts and our and our hands and feet into the learning experience so that we can really encounter something that changes us? And and do we want that? Are we open to that? And how do we become more open to that? And part of it for me is just about the very simple thing of paying attention to what we're yearning for. And I think one of the great powerful things about this period we're living through is that there's a lot of there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of isolation and and really a lot of darkness. But there's also with that a lot of yearning. Things that we took for granted are are no longer there for us. And and we can't see each other's faces because we're all wearing masks. And a lot of people are losing their sense of smell, even if they get a mild case of COVID. And things that we took for granted are suddenly very precious. And we start to ask questions out of that yearning. What, What might the world look like? How do we not go back to the world that was? How do we reimagine? I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Ariel Berger, who is a rabbi and artist and student of the late, extraordinary Elie Wiesel. You know, something I found that you presented in 2019, which in some ways is not that long ago and in other ways feels like, you know, another world, but it was at the Jewish Futures Conference. Mm-hmm. I found this teaching that you did on, and so one of the things you say about about Elie Wiesel, it sounds like you all talked a lot about moral madness. Yeah. And boy, does that sound like an apt way to talk about the world at this part in, in this century right now. And that the way to meet that is not necessarily a kind of straightforward sanity. Right. I kept thinking of Heschel and his idea of creative maladjustment. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and I and I even just recently was thinking about that because I I came across. Um, do you know this sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. preached at Temple Israel Hollywood in the sixties? No. I don't he think didn't. So. He didn't quote Heschel, but he and Heschel were great friends. And anyway, in, in this, he he called for. He said maybe the world is in need of the formation of a new organization, the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. <laughs> Men and women who will be as maladjusted as the prophet Amos, who, in the midst of the injustices of his day, would cry out in words that echo across the centuries. As maladjusted as Abraham Lincoln, who had the vision to see that this nation could not survive half slave and half free, on and on. Yeah. So, these elements of holy madness that you that you taught, um, you know, the first one is truth telling. You told a story to illustrate that about a woman walking in the marketplace, right? Do you know this? What I'm talking about? when her her teacher called to her and said, "Have you looked at the sky today?" 
Yeah. And she looks up for the first time and remembers that she's made for something more than trading in the marketplace. That's a different way to yeah. talk about the truth, the gravity, and the expansiveness of the truth we're called to. Mm. And I think we mean, we often debate in our society as truth-telling. Yeah, I think in that in that story and and in many traditions, truth is really the search for truth. Mm. It's not primarily about facts and data. We we need facts and data, and you know that's been an, an endangered species in many ways for a while too. But there's a certain way of opening up to a larger perspective and saying, I I need to reflect and I need to challenge my assumptions. I need to become aware of my assumptions. Yeah, and this is a big part of my own experience as a student, you know, the the best things I've ever learned were not content. They were some sort of contrast with someone else's way of thinking that at first seemed really strange to me that I allowed in, that I allowed to question me. And I, and I, through that process, became aware of my own assumptions and the lens through which I was looking. And I think a lot about that metaphor of the lens um, that story is about looking down or looking up at the sky and paying attention to material things or paying attention to a, a bigger perspective right? Um, and being reminded of that. And by the way, that's a specific practice also in in certain Hasidic traditions is literally to look at the sky every morning. Really? Yeah. Yeah. There's There's an idea that you receive consciousness from looking at the sky. So um, I think on a very simple level, on a psychological level, it reminds you that the world is big. Yeah. And that gives an important perspective if I'm worrying about something small or preoccupied with something small. You know, it allows me to go deeper and to reach higher just on a very simple level. Um, there are also mystical levels to that idea, but I like yeah. the psychological level. There are mystical um, levels also, I think, you know, you said a minute ago that you're so interested in how how can we get really granular and, and use all the knowledge we have even about how our bodies work to pin these aspirations to action. Like, I feel yeah. like some of the things we're learning scientifically or or maybe that those of us who aren't scientists are being invited in a, in a new way to take in is, you know, how even so we say one of the things that feels most reliable is you look up and the sky is blue, right? But that the sky is not blue, that, that, that our eyes tell us that our eyes make color of light. So even that right. kind of looking up at the sky means something different to me now than it did. And it's a good reality check. It's like, oh, there's more possibility and more reality here then my senses automatically tell me. Right. There's a place for simplicity too, but there's often a, a speed. We're moving with such speed instead of taking time to really question, how, how am I seeing this? And how am I perceiving? And how am I hearing? And what am I missing? And who's missing around the table? Yeah. And what tools are, are we missing in our work? And what are we taking for granted? Those are the questions to me that lead to, that get at the mechanics of moral transformation. It's just a starting point. And really, the purpose is not to answer those questions. It's to, it's to really live with those questions for life and to continue to ask over and over again and never to really settle into a complacency. Um, I am curious when you say there are other mystical ways to kind of take that analogy farther, just do that a little bit, the looking up at the sky. Well, this goes to fundamental things about God and creation, Many of the mystics, at least in Jewish tradition, because Judaism begins with monotheism, 
many of the mystics are dealing with the fundamental question of what's the relationship between one God and the multiplicity of things, events, colors, tones, people, personalities that we find in the world. You know, how do those things fit together? Why is there difference if everything is part of one God? And that's really kind of the driving question for many mystical texts. And and so different traditions and schools of thought have developed different bridges between one, the one and the many. And to me, the most important thing about that, it gets very, very complex. But to me, the that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is if we assert that there is a oneness underlying all difference, what does that do to our politics? And what does that do to things like conflict and dialogue? And how do we find a way of creating a world in which there's a, there's a sense of unity and a, and a sense of connection and it's being practiced with deep respect, deep listening. When I encounter someone who disagrees with me, I'm not just shutting them down or running away. I'm making room for it because there's, there's something of God in that position. There's something for me to learn in that position without collapsing all of that into uniformity or conformity. That's where this um, mystical stuff gets really important to me. Yeah, and that that word unity is out there in our political life right now, and it's it's controversial. Yeah. And let me say, I also love this. Um, if this feels connected to me, you said that one of the virtues, one of the ways to be maladjusted positively is to push against false dichotomies, which are everywhere in this culture. And and claim the countercultural both and paradoxical thinking, and that you said perhaps Elie Wiesel's favorite phrase was "and yet." And yet, yeah. And and this idea that I mean, even going back to Genesis, that even the idea of the help meet, the word that gets translated as help meet, like even the first couple of Adam and Eve, that there's an otherness actually in in the actual language and imagery. In that story, you said this, the first couple are the first friends, the first strangers, and the first to encounter an other. Yeah. The first human relationship. Mm-hmm. And that phrase in the original Hebrew is so paradoxical. It's really not help me. I don't even know what a help me really means. But I know. I think that's the King James <laughs> Version. It's like that Eve is created to become Adam's help meet. This is the language a lot of people learned in church, at least. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I've seen it too uh, mm-hmm. from a young age, but I don't know what a meat is. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but the original Hebrew is it's really fascinating because it's two words. It's not one word, and it's two words. There are two words that mean really the opposite. One is helper, and one is against him. And that's the that's the real key to understanding this this idea of otherness. That that really one of the best things that you can do for me one of the best ways you can help me in my search for for truth, which is a never-ending search, and my desire to improve myself and become a better person is to confront me with your different perspective, your different opinion, your different take on things. And, and, and the way that Professor Wiesel asked the question is, what does it mean to disagree for the sake of the other? Yes. I mean, there are some simple... You quote Elie Wiesel saying, to disagree, to engage with controversy does not mean to refuse to listen, which sounds like such a simple sentence, but it's it's almost impossible in a lot of our 
the places where we engage otherness, at least in public right now. Yeah, I, I want to share that I think there are two challenges with otherness, really. One is, one is we sometimes fall into the trap of not listening or feeling threatened or closing ourselves to the other. But we also make a different mistake, which is to be overly familiar with the other and to think that we already know the other. Right. And one of the things I've been thinking about is the way in which light from a distant star arrives at our planet, arrives at the human eye after such a vast period of time. Light takes time to travel. And so at a very, very micro nano scale, the same thing is true when I'm standing two feet away from someone and looking at them. There's some lag, there's some time lapse between the light from their face reaching my eyes and when it originated in their face, which means there's there's a way in which I'm never seeing you. I'm seeing you a moment ago, even though we can't measure that. And that means that I'm always a little bit behind and my ideas about you are always a little bit obsolete because in that micro nano nano nanosecond, you might've changed hmm. and you might've grown in some way. And, and to me, that's pointing us to a, a great sense of openness to one another. If we could really hold that place of not knowing, that's the other, the other part of otherness is to really allow ourselves to not know each other and to not say, okay, I've heard this political position a billion times before, or, you know, my, my neighbor or my uncle or the person I've had an argument with for, you know, Thanksgiving dinners for the last 10 years, yeah. it's going to be the same this year, but to allow a little bit of space at least for not knowing and the possibility of being surprised. I don't know. I kind of think the like the really well-flexed muscles we have are about arguing and convincing. And I feel like the model, what you model in your relationship with your teacher, Elie Wiesel, and also just with your life and your passion as a teacher yourself is this moving into this place of of teaching and learning from each other. And that's where I come back to kind of, you know, Nicholas Christakis, this scientist, this sociologist, is working with how kind of teaching and learning are these amazing things human beings are able to do and do with and for each other. And one of the kind of elements of good maladjustment <laughs> that you mentioned in your mm-hmm. teaching is tenderness. Um, I think you said, an open heart in spite of everything. Uh, it's a very countercultural move, and yet... It's a move that we actually know are very familiar with in life as it is lived, right? Yeah. I, there, I've had an image in my mind for the last period of time that the world is a baby in our hands and the baby's running a fever. <laughs> and if I were holding a baby, my baby in my arms and the baby were running a fever, I would feel two things that don't always come together that I think we need to bring together. One is such a sense of tenderness and love and open-heartedness and also such, such a sense of ferocity yeah. and willingness to fight and do whatever I need to do to get this baby well. You know, what Elie Wiesel also was so wise about is the pragmatism of the open heart, right? I mean, I think he said to you that I teach with an open heart not for moral reasons, but for pragmatic ones. Yeah, because it opens the students' hearts.
After a short break, more with Rabbi Ariel Berger. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Rabbi Ariel Berger, taking in a theological and mystical perspective on life in our time. We're also experiencing, over our conversational shoulder, some offerings of the late extraordinary Elie Wiesel, who was his teacher. It was really striking to me when you write about that classroom in which you were formed uh, with him, the big conversations and, and heated debates that took place about good and evil. Um, there was this one moment you recount where this debate had flared, and if you resist the idea that people are only evil, does that justify evil? Does it explain it away? And he brought it down to this, I, I find this so stunning and so helpful, this almost a litmus test for how do you know you're not doing that? And he said a, a basic um, thing to hold yourself to. And he said the key in all of this is never allow anyone to be humiliated in your presence. Whatever has happened in the past, we must deal with those who are here now. Even to walk around with that ethic, never to allow anyone to be humiliated in your presence, that gives me so much to think about and to work with. You're getting at something really challenging because... Elie Wiesel wouldn't speak to Holocaust deniers, for example. He was invited to debate Holocaust deniers, and he refused because he didn't want to dignify that position with a debate, right? So there was a line, and there were limits. But I think he saw a world in which people who should be talking to one another are not, and could be, and at the same time, a world in which terrible humiliations are happening right now. Yeah. You know, and, and he literally didn't sleep well at night because... He was so deeply aware of the suffering of of people in the world at that moment. And it was one of the things that he gave his students was a a kind of insomnia. And I, I always tell people I, I never wish insomnia on anyone. I want people to have a really good, healthy sleep. But at least when we're awake, we should be insomniacs. When we're awake, we should be awake. And we should know that right now people are suffering and there's something we need to do about it, even if it's something small. Mm-hmm. So never let someone be... Never let anyone be humiliated in your presence is a very powerful starting point because it means that you cannot, not only can you not humiliate someone, but you can't be indifferent. You can't be a bystander. You can't allow things to happen. You are implicated in what happens. And that's that's really fundamentally the shift, I think, between being a spectator and being a witness. Right. And no one can live with that all the time because we'll, we'll just go mad. Right. This is one of the things that a lot of great, great spiritual leaders struggled with depression because they were interjecting people's suffering all the time. But it's the kind of thing that we can practice. We can turn it into practices of sensitizing ourselves and feeling more and more implicated and building our muscle to have that feeling of responsibility without any despair creeping in. And the more hope we have and the more capacity we have to choose hope, the more we can take responsibility for the world around us. And that's why, to me, hope is the first moral choice. It's the thing that allows us to stay in the game and, and continue to do this work, which is a lifetime's work and more than one lifetime. But if we give up, it's over. We're just, we're just choosing 
to allow people to be humiliated all the time in our immediate presence and by extension in our presence. I heard you talking about bearing witness in the course of 2020, and I've I've been thinking about that phrase ever since, um, that it's a wonderful piece of religious language, right, that is just um, distinctive. It's additive to other ways that we speak and think and mobilize ourselves yeah. in a purely secular sense. The word witness appears in different contexts in very different ways, and obviously in a legal context, but also in in meditation, we talk about witnessing your own thinking. Yeah. You know, that, that hair's breadth of distance where you can reflect on your own thought process and begin to to work with it consciously. You know, that's that's a shift to being a, being a witness of your own mind. There are other contexts as well, the, the religious context you're talking about. And I think it's a very fruitful, rich word that I continue to find nooks and crannies hiding in it. Yeah, I, I think it's the kind of language that we can kind of mull over and carry around and that it, it shifts something. Yeah. It's challenging in a good way, if nothing else, right? It kind of shifts you out of the a default mindset, that numbing that you talked about. Yeah. The word lamentation is like that too, I think, right? Lamentation, like, yeah. 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 It, it challenges you in some way to reframe something. So is the language of redemption, right? That's It's religious language. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I also, and I, I think there's this language of like the silent majority, which was used in Germany and it was used in the 60s and it's been used in American politics now. But I've always felt like there's a, there's also this silent majority of, I believe, of goodness, of generativity. Mm-hmm. And I, I think mm-hmm. this language of witness, of moving from being a spectator to being a witness to a kind of more visible, courageous orientation this is wonderful language to think about mobilizing that. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot. When memory is transmitted, it makes witnesses. Witnesses are activated people who now are telling other people's stories. And what is a community if not a group of people who tell one another's stories? So if we have the capacity to encourage, inspire, empower people to do that more, and not necessarily in, in a large, shiny way. It could be very humble. It could be small and modest. Very often it, it needs to happen more within a family or within yeah. a small community. Yeah. It's an orientation. Yeah. You know, if we can support that orientation and cultivate it. What I love about this is it's not it's not a specific ideology. It's not didactic. It's it's really moral education without moralizing. Yeah. You know, it's just helping people to open and cultivate openness and thoughtfulness, rigorous thought, accountability, working for justice, listening, vulnerability, listening for those soul whispers. These are some of the ingredients that I see here. But there's also there's one practical thing I, I want to share. After the um after the storming of the Capitol, we had a, a meeting of something called the Witness Cafe which emerged from our advisory group that was sort of testing the approach of applying some of these ideas to moral education of, of leaders, of young leaders. Yeah. And we created this opportunity for people to just sort of hang out together because they were wanting more time, unscripted time together. So we, we now meet every other week. And for the first time, there was a real sense of tension in, in reaction to what was happening, what had happened in the Capitol on January 6th. And it became really apparent that we've got real 
political diversity in this group. We've got progressives and conservatives and, you know, they've created some friendships and connections, but there's tension here. Mm-hmm. And we had this very powerful moment. People were talking back and forth. It was getting heated. It was still very respectful, but heated. And we had five minutes left. And everyone sort of turned to me as the host, you know, to kind of close this out and nothing was resolved. So I thought, what would Professor Wiesel do? <laughs> right. So I, I don't know what he would do for sure, but I, this is what came to me. I said, first of all, I'm really happy that we have, that we're surfacing these differences because one of my concerns with, with building anything is that we're going to create another echo chamber. Yeah. And that's not the goal here. Yeah. Um, we could talk about this for another four hours, but we have, we have four minutes now. So let's sing. And (laughs) we sang, we sang a Hasidic melody, a wordless melody, a beautiful melody for the last four minutes. And I think this is one of the directions that I want to explore more. You know, there was a, Rabbi Nachman said that when two people speak at the same time, it's dissonant, it's cacophony, but when two people sing together, it can be harmony. (laughs) So for me, this is about how do we really go beyond our our familiar, comfortable, narrow set of tools and styles, language, and other kinds of tools that we use to address these these issues of difference, to go to all the other tools that we have in our treasure chest that we just don't use. We have to use our treasures. Right. If there's one thing I'm clear about, we need to expand our repertoire. Yeah. Because what got us into this mess is not going to get us out. So that for me was a very powerful moment of really unexpected pushing beyond the the normal first or second or third thoughts I would normally have about addressing a moment of, of conflict. And it was great. And the feedback was, wow, we, we were able to really not just kind of settle back down, but we felt so connected to each other because we were singing together. I love that. That also gets at the limits of words, right? Like the importance of the space we put between the words um, in another, in a whole right. other way. Um yeah. There's also that line of Professor Wiesel that you have at the beginning of one of the chapters in the book, which may be the witness chapter. How can you sing? How can you not? Mm. What a wonderful paired question for this century. <laughs> How can you sing? Yeah. How can you not? Mm. Thank you for reminding me of that. That That's at the beginning of the chapter on on song, Beyond Words. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. You know, the power of moving beyond the limitations of words to either to music or to the white space, the white yeah. space on the page. You know, it really is such a powerful uh, image. And, and we, I, th- I think that's the shift. And one of the ways of being creatively maladjusted is to begin to foreground the white space on the page, almost to see yes. things in negative space and see what, what are those shapes between the words, between the letters tell us, and what do we want to create in that space? I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Ariel Berger, who is a rabbi and artist and student of the late, extraordinary Elie Wiesel. I just want to ask you before we wind down, are there other 
Is there other language? Are there other particular teachings that have really come to you that you're really walking with right now from deep inside the tradition? And there are many, so we have to be careful. It's yeah. a, it's such a uh, tempting question, but um, I'll share a couple of things w- quickly. One is back to the conversation about theology. I think a lot about the relationship between religion and art, religion and the arts. And there's a great teaching in my tradition that says God is a painter and <laughs> God is a painter. And it's a, it's a word play on a Hebrew word. The original translation is there is no rock like our God, but the rabbis creatively play with that and say, there's no painter. The words are very similar in Hebrew. There's <laughs> okay. no painter like our God. Yeah. God is like the greatest painter. Right. <laughs> and, and for me, it's really that God is a painter who then gave us the paintbrush and said, go make something beautiful. And, and I think about that. I think about our job really is to surprise God and everything we're talking about of, you know, the creative maladjustment and the kind of um, white space and the radically different ways of, of engaging with some of these questions that I I think I I passionately feel we need to do Mm -hmm. and we need to make room for is very much about embracing creativity as a central religious value. Right. Which, which is not how I grew up, right? But I think it's, I think it's really how I've come to experience. Um, that was really what what drew me to Hasidic, uh, early Hasidic teaching in the first place was that you find radical creativity there, but it stayed within the tradition somehow. Really holding the tension between those two things, I think that's one thing I think about. And the other is a story that captures the power of and the questions about moral. Moral activation, which is my work right now, is very much about this question of the mechanics of moral transformation and you know how to do that in a real way, in a concrete way. And so do we have time for me, for me yeah, to tell yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, please story? do. Yeah. So my son was uh was on a trip, a semester-long program in Israel, and then they traveled to Poland. And they traveled to Poland for I think about 10 days. And on this program, he made a good friend, a new friend named Mason. And when they got to Poland, they they were touring some of the centers of Jewish life before the war, and they were also going to the camps. And on the third or fourth day of the time in Poland, Mason disappeared for the day with one of the counselors on the program. And he wouldn't tell anyone where he was going, and he came back, and he wouldn't tell anyone where he had been. And then he told my son, because they were friends, or or because my son nudged him a lot to tell him. And this is what he told my son. He said, my grandparents were survivors. They were married three weeks before the deportation to Auschwitz. Mm. And in Auschwitz, they were separated, obviously. And he would go every evening to the fence, separating the men's and the women's sides of the camps to bring her a crust of bread or an extra potato if he could, or even just to see her. Until my grandmother, he said, was transferred to a rabbit farm on the outskirts of Auschwitz. The Nazis were doing experiments on rabbits that had to do with Mm. uh, finding a cure for typhus. And the rabbit farm was run by a Polish man who noticed pretty early on that the rabbits were getting better quality food and attention and care than the Jewish Mm. slave laborers. So he started to sneak in food for the Jewish slave laborers and the inmates. And then Mason told my son, my grandmother cut her arm on a, a piece of barbed wire and the cut became infected 
and it wasn't a serious infection if you had antibiotics. But of course, if you were a Jew in that place in that time, there was no way you were going to get antibiotics. So what did this Polish man who was running the rabbit farm do? He cut his own arm open and he placed his wound on her wound so that he would get the infection that she had and he he became infected. Mm. And mm. he went to the Nazis and he said, I'm one of your best managers. This rabbit farm is very productive. If, if I die, you're going to lose a lot of productivity. I need medicine. They gave him medicine and he shared it with her and he saved her life. So Mason said to my son, he said, where was I when I when I left the other day and I disappeared, I went to see that Polish man. He's still alive. <laughs> I'm living on the outskirts of Warsaw. And I went to say, thank you for my life. Mm. Mm. Thank you for my life. So my son told me this story this year, and it raises a lot of questions about, you know, what does it take to be the kind of person who will share someone else's wound yeah. in spite of all the pressure to see them as a, as less valuable than a rabbit. You know, what does it take to, to push against all that pressure and, and do the right thing with courage and moral clarity and to see another person as a person when, when everything around you is telling you not to? And that question is really, for me, that's the motivating question right now, because I think that's not, not in those extreme situations alone, but in everyday life, how can we turn to the treasures of all of our human traditions, literatures, practices, to become better at that work. Because that, to me, is the most important thing. That's the root cause of all the other challenges mm. and all the questions we're facing. That's a, it's an incredible story, and it's a teaching, isn't it? It's a teaching. Yeah, it's a teaching mm-hmm. my son gave me. Mm-hmm. You know, someplace I saw you writing about the principle of blessing in Jewish thought and life, and I wonder if that would mm. be a good place to close. That's another huh. one of those words that just... It has a it, it 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 imparts a sense of dignity and relief to think about blessing being in the world. So talk about that a yeah. little bit for our time, and how you understand that and what that means to live it. Well, that's the fundamental principle, for me at least, of all of Jewish tradition. Is three words: be a blessing, <laughs> be a blessing. And there's a way that a human life is a blessing. And, and in response to that human life, we all say, amen, amen. There's a kind of witnessing to, to one another's blessings, the blessings that we bring. But what's so fascinating is that, you know, the Hebrew language is, is very uh, profound. And, and the word for blessing is related for the word, the same letters. It's etymologically deeply connected to the word for the knees, the knees and the way that you knees? bend your knees. Oh, your knees. The knees. Okay. Your knees. Yeah. 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 Um, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, and, <laughs> and the way that the, the way that knees are what you what you need to bend when you carry something heavy. And there's a way that a blessing is heavy to carry. If someone blesses you, they really see you, and they they give their seeing of you to you there's a certain sense of responsibility that comes with that. You know, to be witnessed is a responsibility too, as much as to Mm. bear witness. Mm -hmm. And I think about this a lot because we're being asked to carry a lot right now. We're being asked to carry our own lives. That's heavy enough with everything that we're all going through as individuals, our families, our communities, 
the world, the suffering of the world and people around the world. We're, we're asked to carry all of that. It's hard. It's daunting. But a blessing is something that is heavy. And at the same time, it lifts us up. It's liberating to live for something bigger than myself. It frees me of my own smallness, my self-consciousness, my anxieties. Compassion is the greatest, the greatest medicine for anxiety, hmm. the greatest medicine for, for small-mindedness. Hmm. And so there's a way that, that we can be a blessing to each other and bear witness to one another and tell one another stories and really get in there with, with one another with a lot of openness. Um, and that will lift us up. That's mm -hmm. what a blessing really is. Rabbi Ariel Berger is the author of Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom, and he's co-founder and senior scholar of the Witness Institute. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Padre Gautuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikishan, and Lily Benowitz. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.